Welcome to life on earth. Welcome to life on earth. Welcome to life on earth. Hello, you good people. Welcome to Life on Earth. And once again, this really is Life on Earth, the whole Earth. Drill a hole from where I'm sitting right now, and I would be able to pop out the other side and say hello to Dr. Robert Garmong. Robert Garmong, live from China. How are you doing this morning? Oh, a little tired. It's five o'clock in the morning here, but <laughs> otherwise great. Great to see well, you again. You are looking good. Now, now, it's not our topic for today, but for folks who don't know, Dr. Garmong is fighting cancer this year. You are actually looking really good, and you've been posting some pics and videos. Great to see that you're doing so well. This show isn't going to be a fundraiser, though if anybody asks, tinyurl.com slash Garmong, the fundraiser is still out there. Mm -hmm. But no, Dr. Garmong, you have agreed to talk to us about China, and I chose a cheeky title, China and the Real World Out There, but uh, in particular, misconceptions about about the Far East and the relations between the countries out in the Far East. Uh, this has been fascinating in some of the earlier conversations we've had because things that I totally did not know at all outside of the Far East, you know, our knowledge for most of us in the West is kind of superficial. Mm -hmm. We know China's got a population of 1.425 billion people. It was just recently superseded or, or, or over by India of all places. Well, India's always been overpopulated, but that's fascinating to me. That might come up later. With the United States is at number three with 340 million people. It's less than a quarter of the people in China. That to me is amazing. And it makes the GDP differences kind of outrageous too, because the US is still way ahead of the China in terms of GDP. And yet at the same time, I look at pictures of Shanghai, some of the some of the cities in China, and I think, amazing. How did they do that? So right away, the first thing I'm wondering about, and maybe you can you can straighten me out on this because I'm totally baffled. China is a manufacturing powerhouse. You know, the USSR was a communist country, and you know, classically things would come off their assembly lines broken. <laughs> What is China's political system? I guess would be my first question. Yeah, it's, it's the right question to ask because um, it's got communist in the name. Right. But, um, and so people wonder, well, how on earth could a communist country be, become so incredibly productive? And, um, and it is amazing. Um, you know, you still occasionally hear people on online saying, uh, you know, it's all made up, it's not real, there's, you know, it's all Potemkin villages and so on. Well, you know, I live in a high-rise building that you would not have found in communist Soviet Union. So, um, and I think uh, communism per se is defined as the complete control over the means of production by the state. And <clears throat> the state owns all of the means of production. And I think uh, also in the uh, fullest definition, it also includes that the state has total control over the individual. 
uh, in their personal lives, private lives, uh, whom you could marry and where you could live and so on. And China for most of the last half of the 20th century was a communist country. Uh, it was, <clears throat> you had to have permission to live where you lived. You were given your job by the state. Uh, it, it, so it, it really was truly a communist country and it was one of the poorest countries on earth at that time. In 1978-1979, as part of the uh, handover of power after Mao's death, Deng Xiaoping took over and he established what he called the reform and opening up. And that was an opening up specifically of the economic sphere. There were slight opening on, on the civil rights uh, ability to live where you want and so on, but primarily it was an opening of economics. And so with that switch, I think China was no longer a communist country. And here I, I have a, an opinion here that I've not, I didn't get from anyone else and I've not had verified, I haven't discussed this, but my view is that communism is all or nothing or as close as you can get in, in a social system. Communism inherently means total control of everything. But there's another kind of authoritarianism, another kind of totalitarianism, which admits of degrees more so than communism does. And that is fascism. Mm. And fascism is government control over uh, the, the economy, but with nominal private ownership. And so in a fascist country, the degree of control can be somewhat modified. And what Deng Xiaoping did in 1979 was to switch from a communist country to a fascist country. Not all at once, but that was the direction that he set. And so from that point onward, China was on the path toward fascism and away from true communism. That's interesting. That's the first time I've heard it put in those terms, but it certainly makes sense that communism is necessarily totalitarianism, but that fascism can, to some degree, have a mixed economy. That's right. And so uh, it, it was the opening up that allowed for that economy to grow and, and develop. Uh, notice that it was not at first a creative economy. It was an economy that took know-how from overseas and investments from overseas. And that was the opening up part. Before that, Chinese, China's borders had been sealed shut to foreign expertise or investment. But starting in Shenzhen, where I just moved uh, 
that was the first sort of seed that uh, that that Deng Xiaoping opened up as a, a special economic zone (SEZ), and that model was uh, invented, as far as I know, by the Chinese communists or the Communist Party, I should say, as a way of allowing one small area to open up without infecting the rest of the country with this evil capitalism. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a, an incremental kind of change. And Deng Xiaoping was, was himself an incrementalist the whole way. He, he describes crossing a river one step, one rock at a time and you're feeling under the water to see where the rocks are. You don't have an ideological idea of where you're going, how. It's not like a roadmap. When you're crossing a river using stepping stones and they're under the surface of the water, you just kind of feel your way across. And if you find you've gone down a wrong path, well, you go back up a ways and find another path. And so, uh, since that time, and it, it, it changes, it varies with who's in charge and so on, but since that time, China has been fascist rather than communist. Mm -hmm. And it's been due to the free market that they have allowed that they've been able to rise as quickly as they have. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. For folks who who don't know much and are skeptical of that, in 2021, Chinese GDP per capita was twelve thousand five hundred and fifty six dollars. Now that doesn't seem like a lot in the United States. It's sixty nine thousand dollars, but in a communist country, none of that would be in a in an actual USSR style communist country. None of that would be possible. And again, you've got cities in China that. They're modern cities with all of the modern architecture and technology. And it makes me wonder, how would you describe the degree, I don't know what the right word is to use, of egalitarianism? It seems like some people in China are living very well, which has got to mean with an average GDP of $12,000 that some people are living very poorly. So how far from the communist ideal of, of equality, even if equal misery are we? Uh, it, it's a good observation. And yes, in fact, the major cities that you see lining the east coast of China are where all the wealth is concentrated. There are dots of relative prosperity, maybe around an oil field or something like that throughout the rest of China. But the vast majority of China's wealth the vast majority of China's billionaires live in a handful of cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, I'm forgetting one or two, but all coastal cities and all the, the gleaming skyscraper type, type of city. And it is an interesting question because we think obviously communism comes with egalitarianism and and in the villages, you still find a fairly extreme version of egalitarianism. I have family in a, a farm village and 
boy, you don't want to be the one, the, the first one with a car. Uh, I, uh, this is an old story now, but back in the, I guess, mid 80s, when the prosperity was really just beginning to take off, there was a gentleman, this is not a personal acquaintance of mine, but someone that uh, was a friend of a friend, a uh, gentleman in, in a small village outside Shanghai, saved up his money to buy a portable welding machine. And that was a big thing at that time, as you can imagine. And so he would just rove around his own village first and then from town to town doing whatever welding, small welding jobs needed to be done. And he made a lot of money, got quite wealthy and soon was able to buy a fancier welding machine. And then and my friend uh, who kept in touch with him every year or so was always, you know, great, good for you. Congratulations on your prosperity. But about three years after he got rich, he, my friend came by and saw he had gotten rid of the welding machine and closed the company and now was was doing nothing of the kind. He'd gone back to peasant Why farming. Was that? And why on earth would you do that? Really? And he said, I just got so tired of everyone hating me. Mm. Mm. Well, so, that one that one certainly comes from from the, the communist history. We know the old Russian, the Russian joke about uh, in America, envy is wishing you had a bigger car than your neighbor. In France, envy is wishing you had a more beautiful lover. And in Russia, envy is wishing your neighbor's cow would die. <laughs> so that sounds like the worst kind of envy. And I shouldn't be surprised that a country that's at least nominally communist would have a healthy dose of that or unhealthy dose of that. Right. And that still, still is out there. But when the reform and opening up started, and one of the things, Deng Xiaoping had these sort of pithy little sayings. Uh, one of them was, it doesn't matter if a cat is black or white as long as it hunts mice or as long as it catches mice, not hunts. But in other words, that, that was his pragmatic sort of uh, uh, statement. But the, the, the other one was, uh, someone has to get rich first. It can be translated variously, but, uh, and uh, it is divine or blessed or something to that effect to get rich. And so that idea powered them through a couple of decades of growing inequality and growing clear unfairness, not just inequality in the sense that sets American lefties crazy, but real unfairness. And the person with who, whose brother is in the local government gets all the contracts and so on. Uh, it's just that there is an unbelievable level of corruption in this country and an unbelievable level of unfair implementation of laws and regulations and so on. It's pretty, pretty, it's almost perverse that 
a cultural belief in things like luck would be the saving grace against egalitarianism. Well, obviously, he was meant to be wealthy. He's got the stars on his side. That's amazing. Folks, we're talking to Dr. Robert Garmong on the Ayn Rand Center UK channel, Life on Earth with Robert and Amy Nacer. And I want to say thank you to the folks who have contributed through the Super Chat. Thank you very much, Apollo Zeus, who is in with two pounds. Very much appreciated. And Jeff Bannister is in with 10 Canadian. And I mentioned it's Canadian because he is chiming in from Canada and has a question. He says, we compared our COVID lockdowns here in Canada to what we saw in China. Was it as bad as we saw? I know they did not have effective vaccines early. Were you able to get care then? So early on in COVID, how badly locked down were you and how hard was it to get healthcare services? A different topic, but Jeff has paid yeah, yeah, dearly yeah. for this one. The, uh, <clears throat> you can see, I actually have some YouTube videos about the lockdown period. So if you look up Robert Garmong on YouTube, you'll find some of those videos. I've, I haven't done anything since the COVID, uh, the main part of COVID, but <laughs> it is a, a, an important question. Yeah, and Jeff, those videos are a few years old, but they're very good. And yeah, I think that'll be a great answer to your question as well. Uh, but but just in general, I would say the Chinese lockdowns were uh, in the early stage of COVID were far more intensive, but also far briefer. So we had, well, <laughs> it depends. Uh, we had, it, where I lived in Dalian, the first six months, we couldn't go to work. Uh, schools were all shut down. All non-necessary businesses were shut down. Uh, and at, at certain points, you were literally locked into your apartment. They gave you a little uh, booklet with tickets that you had to get stamped anytime you left home. Mm -hmm. So if you went shopping or whatever, and you could only do that, I believe once every two days, one person from your household could, could do it. Now, where I happened to live, they never actually enforced that. They gave us the tickets, but nobody ever asked for them. But in many places, I would say probably the majority of the big cities and, and the majority of Dali, and I happen to live in a, I, I got lucky where I happen to be living. But uh, uh, a lot of people, if you were living in one of these giant high rise buildings, yeah, you had to hand your ticket. You could only leave once every two days. And that wasn't, of course, the worst it got later on in the pandemic that you had the notorious Shanghai lockdowns and, and uh, Guangzhou had a pretty bad one when I was living there. Shenzhen had a really terrible one. And <clears throat> it, was, it was interesting to me. I, I was actually surprised at the level of compliance early on. Most people accepted it. Uh, accepted the lockdowns, accepted the, uh, the, the restrictions. We had, uh, but, but they, eh, Chinese people are very clever about uh, deciding when they will and won't follow the 
the uh, directives. So I happen to be living on, on the backside of a mountain. So if you came up our, it was an amazing place, just beautiful. If you came up the back, out the parking lot, you walked straight up into this mountain ridge that actually went all the way through Dali and you could have walked anywhere from there. Mm -hmm. And all the old timers used to go up there for their daily walk. So of course, when they had the shutdown, they had to go put this orange tacky plastic fencing up there so that you couldn't get out there anymore. Did that people lasted. honor that? Well, it lasted for <laughs> about a month, maybe a little more, which impressed me. But it's hmm. both impressive found... and depressing. <laughs> uh, but you have to realize we started before you guys did. This was in February. Yeah. Right. And we really didn't know what the R naught was going to be. We really didn't know what the fatality rate was going to be. So for all we knew, this truly was the zombie apocalypse hitting us. So I respected the shutdowns myself, mostly. <laughs> but <clears throat> but it, it, once it became apparent, and, and of course, walking in the mountains where you're on your own, uh, that was pretty quickly, uh, by common sense, you could see that that wasn't going to harm anything. Uh, by and large, people wore the masks everywhere. <coughs> and <clears throat> masks are commonly worn when you have a cold anyway <laughs> in Asia. Pardon me. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it leads me to my next question. When I think of people who would wear these masks, even outside of COVID, well, Japan, for example, was famous for if people feel under the weather, they go out with a mask. They've been doing this for years, well before COVID ever happened. And from here in the West, it's very easy to think, well, Japan, China, you know, they're not the same, but there's a lot of kind of are the same. And that's an interesting question, which, which you've broached previously, Another one that's fascinating to me, most Americans don't know. We don't know the differences between Japan and China and South Korea and, and Vietnam, which is now becoming a manufacturing powerhouse as well and seems, oh yeah, they're kind of one of those sort of westernized Far East countries. Are there cultural differences between those four countries? I, I, I gather that there are, but I have no idea. It's... <clears throat> Uh, it is a, a very interesting topic, and it's becoming more and more important as our alliances, the U.S. alliances with Japan, South Korea, Vietnam in particular, <clears throat> are becoming so much more important to our national defense. We really need to know these countries better than we do at present. Uh, <clears throat> of those countries... They're all generally referred to as Greater China or as the Confucian world because they all arose from early Chinese culture and in particular their writing system and their languages took a lot from uh, Chinese. Vietnam's a little different, but <clears throat> in, in the case of 
Korea and Japan in particular, they, they basically took their writing system directly from China and their culture was Chinese culture for hundreds or thousands of years. So in order to become a scholar in China, you would sit through the uh, imperial exams and get certified as having passed the exams up to a certain level, whatever. In order to become a scholar or a, a bureaucrat in Japan, you would come to China and do the same. So for, for many, many, many years, China was the hub of the culture of Japan and, and, and uh, Korea, as well as some other areas that, that uh, now we refer to as greater China. <clears throat> there are some huge cultural differences though. And uh, sometimes I'm surprised at, at how different they are. So the, we often have this uh, notion of the obedient Asian or the obedient Chinaman, sometimes it's even said. Uh, that is not true of China. <laughs> there are no <laughs> obedient Chinamen that I've ever met. <laughs> uh, the Chinese are devils about finding ways around orders or rules or regulations. It is much more true of Japan. The Japanese tend to be much more rule bound <laughs> and uh, at least, now I've not lived in Japan, I've interacted with Japanese people, but in general, the, their reputation is as being much more orderly, much more uh, ritualized. So mm -hmm. for example, we talk about uh, the, the culture of face, losing face, and that whole idea of you don't want to lose face, and that's almost a, a fate worse than death to lose face. Now, is that more of a Chinese or a Japanese phenomenon, or is it just different? It's, it comes across differently. It's true of both cultures, but in Japan, it's much more what you're thinking of as the ritualized face, where the people... Not so much anymore, although it still happens. Uh, if a businessman loses a bunch of money, he may ritually commit suicide. That, that still happens. And that happens in China somewhat, but uh, maybe less so. But the, the, the sort of ritualized, very formal and very... Uh, strong emphasis placed on following the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you lose a lot of face. That's a much more Japanese idea than a Chinese idea. The Chinese are much more, in America, you can lose face too, right? We don't want to be embarrassed. Um, we don't want to be people will do irrational things in America too to avoid losing face. And I would say the Chinese version of face is much closer to the American one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much stronger than the American one, but it's closer. 
there, there, there aren't the rituals and rules. And, and I think a lot of that, may, it may have been closer before the last century, but I think a lot of the rule boundedness was blown away when they simply had to survive by any means necessary. Right. Yeah, I don't think there's quite as much tradition involved in shame in the U.S. Uh, I'm less likely to kill myself over a business failing as a as a social media failing, <laughs> or you know, grade school something in your social circles more like that. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so is it more pragmatic in China? You think? <sighs> yes. Versus Japan. You, in a way, hard, yeah. Hard to say exactly. I'd I'd say in just in terms of pure pragmatism, Japan has rules, mm -hmm. not necessarily principles, mm. and that's an important difference. Mm. So there may be a rule about how you treat your your boss, for example, that doesn't have anything to do with actual needs of the job and so on it's just the expectation that everybody goes out drinking all night after work or <laughs> those kinds of things that are part of that work culture and they are rules that if you don't follow or you can't follow them you may lose face in the office but i wouldn't call that a principle uh, in, in China, there's a tendency not to have rules or principles. Uh, and of course, anything I say is an exaggeration or uh, is a, a, a sure. uh, stereotype, of course. But the tendency is for uh, much more, uh, in, in Japan, there's much more tight rule boundedness, but it's not necessarily principled behavior. Mm -hmm. Yes. the way that uh, we, we would aspire to. Yeah, I, I want to drill into this, this question of Japan versus China in a little more personal detail. But first, let me say thank you to Bonnie, who's in with Super Thanks uh, Super Chat. I do appreciate that. So thank you for checking in. You, know, you had mentioned, well, Americans, you know, and I don't mean Americans from 100 years ago, World War II, we remember things differently. But post-World War II, and especially post the 1970s, when Japan really took off as an industrial powerhouse, not just in terms of the amount of production, but the quality, you know, electronics and vehicles. So we tend to think highly of Japan in the U.S., at least those of us who were around during that era. But you stated that you don't think people understand how much Japan is actually loathed throughout the region. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I mean, what does that look like? <laughs> yeah, we think of the Japanese, you know, the, the most offensive thing they ever did was take too many snapshots, in, at least in, from the <laughs> 80s. That's the stereotype, right? The Japanese tourists with their cameras everywhere. And they and, dumped all their really nice cars on us and almost destroyed the big three. That's right. Terrible. <laughs> and of course, yeah, there, there was hostility over those issues, but... Uh, but for those of us more enlightened, uh, we, we tend to see the Japanese in a very benevolent light. Right. However, throughout Asia, they are not seen in anything like a benevolent light. Mm. 
because people here have a very long memory and they remember the 20th century, which even before the 20th century began, Japan had become a militarized country and had begun fighting wars of aggression mm -hmm. everywhere. And they were, they were in a sense, I don't know if, they were the aggressors of Asia. Uh, people still do like to, the, the Japanese especially like to point out that they're the only Asian country to have ever defeated a Western country in war in their, uh, uh, the Japanese-Russian war, but- The Western. <laughs> Western, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> scare quotes, Western. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but they had, uh, they, they made terrible, terrible aggressive acts in China, Mm -hmm. in the Philippines, in throughout Asia. And Putin's got nothing on what the Japanese did to Asia. And the, the photos are real. Uh, look up the rape of Nanjing, mm -hmm. if you want to remember. Yeah, we, are we are familiar with the rape of Nanking. And it's interesting to me that yeah, in the West, we have a sort of benevolent perspective on them. But that's because we also dropped the only two atomic weapons that have ever been used during military conflict and wiped out whole cities. And it's a little easier, I guess, afterward to be more gracious, having never had that from China or mm -hmm. any of the other countries that Japan was atrocious to during wartime, I guess I can see there's there's not a lot of forgiveness there. The U.S. also has a historically short, a, a famously short historical memory. Well, there is that historical too. memory of a gnat. <laughs> Which <laughs> Sad but true. In many cases actually is a good thing because yeah. we don't dwell on those ancient, uh, to us at least ancient uh, slights. Right. Yeah, you would think that you, if you were more of a tribalistic uh, mentality, then you're going to dwell on things that have happened, you know, 300 years ago or something. Yeah. Well, I That's like the right. idea that rather than being bad at history, we just don't hold grudges. I like that better. I like that better. <laughs> <laughs> I think we it's also a little are both. bad at history, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that the truth is 50-50 there. <laughs> but in China, the if you turn on the TV on any given night you're gonna see uh, some sporting events, maybe some news, it's very limited fare, mm -hmm. maybe some documentaries about this wonderful part of China or that wonderful part of China, but there's guaranteed to be at least one Second World War movie where the Japanese mm -hmm. are the bad guys, uh, sometimes in cahoots with the Americans, which doesn't quite make a lot of sense, but... Uh, there, there'll mm -hmm. be some Japanese spy who is working with the Americans against the Chinese or something. That's a more recent development as the attitude toward America has shifted toward the negative. Mm -hmm. But there's always the evil Japanese, always. Wow. And, mm -hmm. 
And it's so instilled in the culture. <clears throat> I remember growing up and uh, our, for me, it was the Germans, right? We mm -hmm. had the, the, the war movies, it was always the Germans. And so when we'd go down in the ravine and, and play soldiers, it was the Americans versus the Germans, but we didn't really know who the Germans were and we didn't really care, it didn't matter. And if I actually met a German person, it didn't actually affect me. Right. But to the Japanese or to the Chinese, uh, Japanese are are at, it's it is a curse of death to have Japanese on your name. And my son, who's seven years old, has already been thoroughly infested with this notion, and he'll say things like, "I want to take." I want to get a gun and go to Japan and, and shoot as many people as I can, which shows that he's absorbed the worst parts of China and America. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because that is terrible, but you've, you've told us the story about yes. sometimes he's, he's had a bit of ill will towards you just because you're an American. So right. That doesn't surprise me at all that he would have that, well, that perspective that, on Japan. I'm glad that you're his father and you can help him, help guide him with these views. <laughs> as much as any father can. Right. Uh, this recent release of water from the Fukushima reactor, which yeah. was controversial around the world and a lot of people, a lot of governments condemned it, said it's too early, it hasn't whatever has the, the water is still too radioactive to have been released into the ocean. Well, the Chinese internet lit up at that. And, and of course that means the government because nothing goes on the internet without government approval. Right. So uh, people were actually, the, the, the rumors and conspiracy theories were, unbelievable mm -hmm. the, the fish are going to i literally literally that fish were going to turn grow gigantic and turn into godzilla yep. that yep. grow and glow in the dark yeah the entire world's oceans were going to be turned barren mm -hmm. by this release which just common sense, even if it were as bad as you think it is, the entire world's oceans from right. one cooling pool, I don't think so. No. Just what those Japanese would do. Yeah, if they could do it, they would. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and go ahead. Now, I was just thinking we could move because I don't want to go too far over our usual time, but... I have a question that I need to ask. Okay, please. Oh, okay, okay. This is a completely, like, a little bit of a change of subject because oh. this goes back to the 1500s uh, when Portugal uh, and their, the explorers uh, came to Japan and China and they discovered all sorts of things and they traded with them and um, uh, and they just uh, they gunpowder and everything, but also hand fans, which I should have uh, grabbed real quick to show. But um, they discovered in Asia these these fans that that were secured at the end and they would open up 
into a fan and you could actually use it to kind of air condition yourself. And they brought those back to Europe. And in doing so, uh, basically in the all throughout, usually the basically the 1800s um, down in, in the south of Spain and Andalusia, uh, a lot of people came together. A lot of people were ostracized by the Catholics and, um, you know, from the Jewish and the, the people, the, the Muslims, the Moors, um, different cultures down there all came together and they created flamenco dance and they used those hand fans. And so, Robert, you were telling me recently that you actually encountered flamenco dancers in China, which is astounding to me because there are plenty of flamenco dancers in Japan. Could you could you tell me a little bit more? <laughs> well, it always comes uh, back to flamenco. Yes. <laughs> Western dance is very popular here, and especially... For, at all ages, but for the young, parents really like to put their children, especially young girls, into dance classes. And flamenco is one of the, I would say, one of the more popular ones Neat. because it's seen as being so graceful and elegant. And, and of course, the, the, the typical Chinese figure is well cut out for the, mm -hmm. the sinuous motions of flamenco dance. So uh, I just happened to be in the local shopping mall and there was a demo of flamenco dance. Nice. Not, not as elaborate as the demo that you had, but uh, <laughs> I, was, I was sort of surprised. It was a little blast from home uh, and a little memory from home <clears throat> you don't see a demo of it and you don't see <clears throat> what's unfortunate is live performance performance art of any kind mm -hmm. is not a big part of chinese culture mm -hmm. it's it exists but it's not a thing the way it is in the west and mm -hmm. i i lived in austin for 15 years where you couldn't open a closet door without seeing somebody with a guitar and, <laughs> and a hat on the floor. So to me, that that's a huge loss. So you won't mm -hmm. see a lot of, it exists, especially in the big cities and in the downtown areas. There are performances, but I've not seen a really professional dance performance here, unfortunately. Wow. I, I hope that as flamenco becomes more popular in China, so will freedom and so will the idea of individual rights, right? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's funny because uh, when I, so I know I have a, um, well, we have Chinese friends, we have Japanese friends. And um, well, one of my, one of my best friends, Lily, she was born in China and um so I get I get some stories from her about China and stories about, you know, how she kind of associates herself as more of a Canadian <laughs> rather than a Chinese. So um, but, you know, she she performs. She plays. She's a multi-instrumentalist and um, she sings. She uh, she's she went into graphic design. She decided to have the courage not to become a pharmacist like her mother wanted her to. And um, so it, so I've seen firsthand the kinds of uh, 
um, obstacles she's had to get through. Um, and then my Japanese um, performers um, who uh, do flamenco dance with me, um, a little story there is that uh, they love doing choreographed moves. They, they like that. Um, but whenever I bring up the idea of improvisation, they all kind of freak out. <laughs> Don't don't do it. Don't imp don't uh, improvise. No, no, no. That's too and scary. <laughs> it fits that that would be uh, it could be Chinese also, but mm -hmm. really, really true of the Japanese culture. Yeah. You know, they they want a plan. They want it mm -hmm. laid out in advance. The Chinese are much more loosey goosey. Yeah. Plan schman, uh, <laughs> including in business, which is not a good thing. Right. But that, that, that's one big difference between the cultures. It, the Chinese are more open to improvisation than the Japanese would be. So my next uh, question is the K Koreans, South Koreans. I know that uh, there's a big culture of, um, of, of you know, K-pop, Korean pop music, you know, and, um, and dance. Uh, they, and people coming together to do swing dancing, which is, is quite improvisational as well, and, and other kinds of like hip-hop dancing and things. And so is that, are they a little bit more open to improvisation and innovation much, and uh, much, much, yeah. much, much, much. Yes. Wow. I would say Korea is maybe because of the longer influence from the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the youth in Korea are very free and open and, and, and uh, much more it is, does not surprise me that you've got K-pop, but you don't have chai pop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. You know, you, you had mentioned the rapprochement between South Korea and Japan, and I have not been following the recent news on that. Um, wh what can you tell us about that? What's the story well, there? It's a, it's a small step, but uh, the U.S., Secretary of State Anthony Blinken made a trip to South Korea and met with the leaders of Japan and South Korea in order to sign a some sort of a treaty of uh, one of these is not a mutual defense pact, but a we like each other better now pact kind of thing. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the way diplomacy works, there are, there are a lot of steps between you know, war on the one hand and NATO alliance on the other hand. And they've taken several steps recently, and this was the biggest one, toward we're normalizing our relationships, uh, we're, we're opening up some more, I forget the details of it, but opening up some more trade avenues. And, and I assume, I think student exchange was part of it. A lot of things that would just would not have happened 10 years ago or five years ago. And I actually give a lot of credit to the US diplomats who made that happen because it's very, very important right now that those countries that we are allied with or whatever you want to call it 
<clears throat> in the in the Far East, mainly South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, increasingly, <laughs> those countries need to get along. The Philippines <laughs> also, and we need to be making sure that we don't ourselves stir up antagonisms, which we've done at times in the past, accidentally or on purpose. But uh, we, we really need to, do, if we could go back and restart that TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, that, that uh, we killed at the beginning of the Trump administration, mm -hmm. anything we could do to build connections with other countries in Far East Asia that are not China mm -hmm. it would be a good thing. Yeah. And so that, that had to be an impressive diplomatic achievement, what those guys were doing behind the scenes to get, just to get the, uh, the, the, the bitter taste of World War II out of the mouth to whatever extent they were able to. And that's where I jokingly say Xi Jinping, you know, Anthony Blinken should get a Nobel Prize for that. And Xi Jinping should share it because it's only because China has become so much more aggressive mm -hmm. that anything like that becomes even possible. But mm -hmm. we really need to work on those alliances, strengthening them. And that also extends to India and um, and Australia as well. That whole group of countries really needs to work together because China is becoming more aggressive and more of a dangerous power than it was. When I came here, the idea that China would actually go to war with anyone, <laughs> but let alone that the US and China would end up at war, no way. Well, now it's possible. I don't think it's probable, but it is possible. So we need to be doing everything we can to prevent that. Yeah, I so, guess that sounds more like good news than uh, bad news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just very, very grateful that uh, nothing bad has happened to, to Taiwan. Yet. Uh, yeah, yet. <laughs> Hopefully never. <laughs> uh, no. Right. In that regard, we we talked about countries, and you pointed out there are real cultural differences between. But one thing they have in common is some respect for markets and technology and production and manufacturing. What what can you tell us? Well, Amy and I, we went to Ocon, and one of the last events at Ocon this year was Yeonmi Park spoke to us over dinner mm -hmm. about her experiences escaping North Korea. Wow. But most people in the West, we haven't met any North Koreans firsthand. What is your experience with North Korean people? And what's your impression of, of the actual people, their cultures or their beliefs? When I lived in northern China, in Dalian, mm -hmm. I would encounter North Koreans fairly frequently. Probably a lot more than I realized because they were bank tellers or whatever, a, a lot of people could come over legally or illegally, they would make the border crossing. And uh, Dalian was a big place for money laundering from North Korea. Yeah. So 
there were a lot of, of officials and um, whatever kind of business people you could have in that country. <clears throat> and, and also we had a lot of student exchange. So I had a student in my class who was North Korean. <laughs> and uh, he was, we, we had some interesting conversations. Uh, he was not shy about the fact that he, right after China, America was his most hated country on the, on the planet. <laughs> Uh, he made a, uh, an exception for me, but <laughs> otherwise. How nice! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I had so I had enough encounters to at least have a generalized notion of mm-hmm. mostly the elites, but also some more common people. <clears throat> and what I found was completely surprising to me. Uh, those people are nuts, 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 nuts. They really believe their government's propaganda, at least as far as I could tell. And these are people who ha- spend time overseas. They're, they're diplom- uh, children of diplomats or diplomats themselves. They should know better. <clears throat> But for example, I've, I've had North Koreans solemnly tell me that uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un invented a weather machine that is going to destroy China just as soon as he gets sick enough of them. Uh, and China is their number one most hated country. It's not America. It's China. Oh, why is that? Wipe one country off the earth, it would be China. Wow. Any idea why I, the animosity? I think it's partly because of their intertwined history. You don't find that so much in, in South Korea. Mm. It's mostly North Korea. The fact that they depend on China so much really irks them. Mm-hmm. And one thing in general about Korean culture is an, it's, it's, it is an extremely proud culture. They, the, the, the Koreans, in, in some sense or other, truly believe that they are the greatest country on earth. Hmm. Not the U.S., not the U.S., not China, not France. Their culture, their traditions, their history. Whatever aspect this particular individual grabs onto, they truly believe that they are, they have the same attitude toward Korea that Americans do toward America. And we can't imagine that anybody else has that attitude toward their country, but they do. And I would say the, the Koreans have it more than anybody else I've ever met as a whole in general and, you know, allowing for differences. They're an extremely, extremely proud culture. You could almost see that in South Korea. I kind of admire, I appreciate that. I I could see it in South Korea, given their success. But in North Korea, what on God's green earth are they proud of? Well, that's the problem. If you have this notion that we're the greatest culture on earth, (laughs) and then you're constantly under the shadow of your big brother, giant brother next door 
Yeah. That's got to just really be irksome. So if you imagine you think you're the greatest guitarist on earth and there's somebody that everybody louds over you and they say, Naser, yeah, he's second, but man, that Garmon guy, he's just awesome. <laughs> you know that I'm way inferior to you as a guitarist. I don't play guitar to begin with, but uh, you know, that would piss you off eventually. I mean, you, you, would, you would deal with it, right? You would not let that bur burn into your soul, but... <laughs> I was going to say, in the age of the internet, though, the, the evidence is just overwhelming that, well, no, the, the Western countries really are better. But I guess in North Korea, you don't have the free internet. You'd be lucky if you have a computer with access to anything at all. So I guess it's a little easier to convince people that, yeah, things aren't that much better in the West. <clears throat> well, yeah, things are worse in the West. Mm -hmm. we're, we're the greatest country <clears throat> economically and in every in every way. Now that it's harder to maintain that now that they, they do have access to information. People do cross that border, although during COVID they were shooting on site, so that border mm -hmm. crossing has dropped way down. Mm -hmm. But the, it, it, the, it is a somewhat porous border back and forth. So. They have information. People bring USB drives back from China. And of course, China is <laughs> not the source of free and, and open information anyway, but they can get the information they need. Uh, but it's heavily censored. <clears throat> and the people, what, what just still amazes me is the people in the elites are the ones who believe the propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, my very first conversation I ever had with a North Korean was a son of a diplomat and he was absolutely convinced he, he found out I was American so he glommed on to me they, they they love to hate Americans and and so we had a three-hour conversation on the bullet train to Beijing wow he wouldn't let me go <laughs> he kept buying me beer and I don't drink that much beer. <laughs> he kept buying you beer. I mean, but, is it, is it, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it, uh, it makes yeah. you wonder what do they have in North Korea that makes them think, yeah, we know what we're doing. We're doing all right. You know, Bonnie in the chat says, do people have cell phones in North Korea? Do they have the technology that they can see is all over China? And that at least somewhere in photographs or video would show that it's all over the West. Well, the elites do. The elites have yeah. their cell phones. They, they, they're not iPhones with, uh, with uh, Telegram on them. But <clears throat> yeah, they do have. The, the elites in North Korea live reasonably well. Ah. And, so, so they I have all the servants they want. Mm live in a kind of medieval paradise yeah yeah so i kind of wonder if it's something uh you know how there are some people you know in in even in the states here they are superstitious they won't walk under a ladder they won't um i don't know go to the 13th floor whatever it may be 
Um, but they're very adamant about it. Um, and it's this primacy of consciousness kind of thing um, where they, 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 you know, here in the States, obviously, they don't have much excuse to have superstitions. But in North Korea, I guess, I mean, tell me if I'm if I'm not if I'm not going in the right direction with this, but I I see them, you know, worshiping Kim Jong Un as a god, um, and thinking to themselves, "I owe my life, my prosperity, my family's lives and prosperities uh, to this god," and I'm not even going to consider thinking anything different than I was told to believe, lest you know, what they do in North Korea, if if one person says something, their whole family is eliminated. Um, so I, I kind of wonder if, if it is something that is like, we're, that we must embrace evasion, we must evade all of these things we're seeing in China. Um, because if we don't, it's almost like a superstition, then will something terrible will befall us. Mm. <clears throat> that makes a lot yeah. of sense to me. And it is a very superstitious culture in general. And Far East Asian cultures, Confucian cultures, greater China are in general much more superstitious than European cultures are, Western mm -hmm. cultures. So it's, it's much deeper, even than you're a person who won't, won't get off the elevator on the 13th floor. It's, it's rare to find somebody in the U.S. for whom that superstition is as deep as it is in Asian cultures. I, since we're going a little over time, I guess I'd want to ask, do you think there is hope that, you know, China for a while there was on a very good track. They were moving more and more in capitalist direction. And it just seems like Xi has has, has five years ago, even before COVID, really started putting the brakes on that. Do, do you think there is hope for moves in a better direction just because it has to be obvious that, oh yeah, that's not working out and we need a little more respect for property, a little more respect for markets? Uh, not from the leadership. I, uh, honestly, I, I see no hope for the leadership of China. But there is a small, there is some hope in a few different aspects of the current situation. And it really came out in last year or beginning of this year with the COVID situation. Because you saw when people realized that there was no end in sight and no good justification for the degree of lockdowns that they had and the, the, the pain and suffering that they were going through, people did actually rebel. Mm -hmm. And all those videos that you saw, that was, that was my neighborhood. Mm, I didn't wow. see any of those protests, but that was a, a few kilometers from where I lived. Mm -hmm. And... <clears throat> It impressed me that, that this would, <clears throat> would raise that level of ire against the government such that people would actually take action, go out into the streets. Notice they didn't try to start a revolution. Mm -hmm. They kept it, which, and I'm obviously in a sense that 
we would like to see another government in China, <laughs> but I'm generally not a fan of revolutions. They don't work out very well on the whole. So people were actually being quite reasonable in their protesting against the government. And, and they wanted freedom, but not, not chaos, not anarchy. So I think that showed something very, very positive. And also what, so that's one aspect that, that people have risen up against the government in specific ways. Another aspect is at the start of COVID and actually before COVID, there, for a long time, there's been a flood of, or a general flow of Chinese people from overseas returning to China. Hmm. When I would help students go to America to study, most of them, their intention was to come back to China when they finished. Mm -hmm. And people who went over in, in various ways on various visa types, frequently in the past, they might want to live forever in America. You know, they, the, the original path was the, you go to study in America, you get a job, after you graduate, go for a green card and, and bring your parents over when you have the ability to do so. That had reversed by the mid-aughts, I would say. Huh. And the majority of people that I know, and also statistically, the flow was about even, but a little bit leaning toward coming back to China. And when COVID started, <clears throat> A, a huge number of people came from America back to China. Mm -hmm. America is chaotic. America is unsafe. Americans wow. don't wear masks and so on. And so now that's been reversed. Mm. Okay. And, not, and I don't say that just because I celebrate the brain drain of bright people from China to America, which is great, but just the attitude toward America during the height of the, the, the uh, return to China movement, America had a very dark name just in terms of day-to-day -day living among most Chinese. And it still does to a large extent, but that's starting to turn around a little bit. Uh, people still talk about gun violence. They still talk about some negatives in America. Gun violence is the biggest mm -hmm. one. Right. But, but uh, the, the attitude toward America has become much more positive recently. So those two things among the public are really good signs. But the yeah. government, no. Any, I don't even see minor changes back. <clears throat> they, they often will try to talk a good game, but it's just talk. So that recently they, they scared away a bunch of foreign investors by doing fairly random and, and uh, uh, 
not necessarily legitimate audits of some big companies that were doing business in China. And people were paying huge fines for things that were not uh, genuine <clears throat> offenses. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of foreign investors were getting cold feet about coming to China for, with really good reason. And <clears throat> so the government started talking up, oh, we're, we're, we really welcome foreign investors. They even set up a couple of uh, uh, zones where they took away even more of the regulations than they had before but it was all a sham. The, mm -hmm. the supposed uh, waived regulations were still there in place. So you, you'd move in on the promise that these rules didn't apply within this district. And here comes the, the friendly person from the, the local government to inform you that you're in violation of this one and you owe a $2 million fine. Mm. It's, it's really, it's, the, the trend is not good. And I see literally no chance that a current government will, will change that. <sighs> yeah, well, it looks like we're probably gonna wrap up here just shortly. We just came, we uh, were a little past 10 out over the hour. We're, we'll probably get to, um, we haven't gotten to Hong Kong yet, or but, Taiwan. Yeah, I think there's another discussion yeah, to be had here. there's another discussion here for sure. And um, and not to end on... Uh, but I, I wanted to ask one more question. Yes. How, how are you doing, Robert Garmong? How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing all right. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you for asking. I'm feeling much, much better. Better all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm almost through with my cancer treatments. So mm -hmm. hopefully within a matter of months, I'll literally be back to normal. Yeah. So that's it, life is good. <clears throat> Great. Yeah. And, and congratulations on getting through your move from uh, uh, um, Guangzhou to Shenzhen. That, that has not been easy. <laughs> Of course, my wife had to do all the work because I can't, I still can't really carry a box. I can barely pack a box. It, it still exhausts me. Yeah. So she is, she should be sainted. Yes. All the work <laughs> that she's done. Yeah. And again, it was great to see the videos that you posted recently. You've been out shopping and mm -hmm. even if you can't carry things around, it's great to see you on your feet and looking good. Uh, Jeff Bannister, thank you, is in thank with a super you, chat and says, thanks, Amy and Robert, both of you. Great show. Thank you, Jeff, for your support. We do appreciate that. And a big thank you to everybody out there who has supported the fundraiser as well. Yeah. Uh, again, tinyurl.com slash Garmong if you want just to see how generous people have been. Yes. It's been great it's to see. It's inspiring how generous people have been. And and we're looking for more, even more inspiration, of course. But uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so thank you, Dr. Garmong. Again, we've we've had this discussion before and, and I keep uh, you keep bringing out aspects of this that are fascinating yeah. to me, things that a lot of us don't know. This has been a good conversation. I think we'll have to do this again because, yeah, Hong Kong, Taiwan. I don't know if we'll have necessarily hopeful things to say, but it would be great to understand more. How we how we can canonize your wife. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll get to that too. 
<laughs> so thank you. Thank you, folks. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life on Earth. Again, uh, we're talking about the other side of the earth, but really the whole earth. Dr. Garmong, thank you for your time. It's been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And, and yeah, as you were saying, thank you so much to all the people who have supported me in my, with my GoFundMe. Um, it, it truly has saved my life. So you... Well, then, then our work is done. Well, not done yet, but it has been our pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Gramong. Thank you, everybody. Join the ARC UK for tomorrow's Daily Objective reality show, and we will be back for life on Earth next Thursday. Have an outstanding evening. <laughs>